Good afternoon. I am uh, Mark Uptegove, the director of the LBJ Presidential Library, and I want to welcome you here today. We, have, uh, we are greatly privileged to have Ambassador Jack Matlock address a subject that is of, of great importance to us right now, our relationship between the United States and, and, and Russia. Uh, and uh, we are in a, uh, an institution uh, named for a, a president whose foreign policy was defined by the Cold War. And there are few uh, men alive who know more about the Cold War and who are more instrumental in its ending than our guest today. Introducing uh, Ambassador Matlock will be the distinguished scholar at the Strauss Center and the Frank Irwin Center, uh, Centennial Professor in UT's Department of Government, uh, Zoltan Barani. Zoltan? It's a pleasure to uh, introduce Ambassador Matlock. I just asked him if he minded if I revealed his age, and he said he didn't. And so he will be 85 years old next month. And uh, this is important, uh, and it will become important, you see why in a minute. Uh, he uh, uh, received his uh, undergraduate degree, summa cum laude, at Duke University in 1950, then went up to Colombia to uh, uh, do graduate work in Russian studies, and in 1953, he went to Dartmouth to be an instructor of Russian language and literature. Uh, I think that he decided that maybe he could uh, do more important things than teach uh, nasty undergraduates Russian language. <laughs> and so in 1956, he decided to join the Foreign Service. And not only did he decide this, but he had a very explicit goal in mind. And that was to become one day the uh, American ambassador to the Soviet Union. And he, he uh, realized this goal 31 years later in uh, 1987 when uh, President Ronald Reagan named him the ambassador to the uh, uh, Soviet Union. Uh, in between the 31 years, he had done a number of very impressive things. He was the director of uh, Soviet affairs uh, in the State Department, the deputy director of the Foreign Service Institute that uh, uh, essentially uh, trains our diplomats. He was the senior director for European and Soviet affairs on the National Security Council. And of course, he had um, a number of postings abroad. Uh, perhaps most importantly, prior to uh, his ambassadorship, he had three tours in Moscow, but also, was ambassadorship, uh, also he was an ambassador to uh, the Czechoslovakia in uh, 1981 to 1983. He attended uh, all of the uh, US-Soviet summits between 1972 and 1991, uh, with the exception of one uh, under President Carter. And uh, well, he uh, had really this incredible career, as Mark noted, between 1956 and 1991 in the, um, in the Foreign Service. And uh, a 35-year sort of experience and tremendous closeness to the most important things that were shaping our world. Uh, since his retirement in 1991, he, uh, he was on faculty at uh, Hamilton College at uh, Columbia University uh, at Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. And he has written several books. And those of us who 
teach the Cold War, uh, probably assigned at least some of them. And these include Autopsy of an Empire, empire his first as a sort of uh, from the perspective of an American ambassador uh, seeing the end of the Cold War. Uh, the second, Reagan and Gorbachev, how the, co uh, the Cold War ended. And uh, the most recent one, a few years ago, Superpower Illusions, that was uh, published by Columbia University Press. So someone uh, like me, who has studied the Soviet Union and Russia a great deal, and taught about it at the University of Texas for 24 years, uh, we're all aware of most of what I just said to you. But the two things I want to tell you that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also impressed in, I found out not that long ago, I also have an interest in Africa, and I realized that uh, in the early 1960s, uh, Ambassador Matlock spent uh, several years in Ghana and then in Zanzibar and Tanzania. These were countries that just were emerging from, from colonial rule. And so he met some of the people that I had read it and, and appreciated greatly, such as Julius Nyerere that uh, some of you pro probably remember, the president of Tanzania for, for many years, and not uh, incidentally the only American, uh, only African president in my uh, knowledge who actually gave up power voluntarily. So the second thing that I want to uh, tell you about in closing my remarks is uh, more of the academic nature. As I mentioned, uh, he went up to Dartmouth in 1953 and stopped his PhD studies. And I think that uh, it's really interesting, uh, and I, I found out because my wife is a, is a graduate of uh, Columbia University, and we get the Columbia University student, you know, alumni papers, pe people who want you to uh, give them money, essentially. But they also occasionally have some, some common interest uh, uh, articles. And there I see uh, in 2013 in the May issue, uh, Ambassador Matlock uh, getting his PhD. And so the article will tell you about it in 2005 at the memorial service of George F. Kennan, whom we, most of us uh, will know intimately. He, he met uh, one of the Russian professors, Russian literature professors at Columbia University who said, uh, well, Jack, I know it's been 55 years, but for God's sakes, when are you going to finish the dissertation? And uh, in 2013, exactly 60 years after he left uh, Columbia University for Dartmouth, he finished his dissertation. So it's not just uh, Ambassador Matlock, but for all of us, it's Ambassador Dr. Professor Matlock. And I just want to say for all of our uh, PhD students here, and I see a couple of mine in the audience, it's okay to stop your PhD studies and bail, but please, come back in 60 years, and please have something of a similar career than Ambassador Matlock. Jack. And he's going to talk to us about the end of the Cold War and also some more uh, uh, topical uh, remarks about the Ukraine and so on. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks very much. And I very much appreciate those kind words. I very much appreciate the invitation to come here uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, I, I was just, somebody asked me, when were you last in Austin? And I had to think. and. I was last in Austin in 1972, 
when I took my family, we have five children, on a camping trip across the United States. We had been living out of the country much of the time, and we tried to cover as many states as we could, and our youngest liked to have his picture taken in front of state capitals. So we came to Austin, sort of camped outside, came in town, I got his picture in front of the state capitol. You know, it's so big here that, uh, well, I, I'm afraid I got a little bit of uh, perspective distortion in pointing the camera, but we got that. And when I thought about it, I think, uh, well, 72, what is it, 42 years? Anyway, thanks for bringing me back and uh, to this uh, wonderful uh, presidential library, and I look forward to uh, taking a look at it uh, later. Now, I wanted to talk today about how we ended the Cold War. And I, I do that because we're hearing so much about Cold War II. The rhetoric now that we're hearing both in Russia and in Washington, and to some degree in parts of Europe, reminds us of the height of the Cold War. And yet, let me say right up front, I don't think we are entering a, a new Cold War, even though the rhetoric sounds like it. But I do think we've gotten ourselves in a very dangerous situation in terms of our relationship, in part because we have, in my opinion, failed to understand some of the lessons we should have learned when we ended the Cold War. Now, when we think about it, if we go back to the time 25 years ago when the Berlin Wall fell and very quickly Germany was united. Uh, the communist governments in Eastern Europe fell. Suddenly we had what seemed to be a Europe whole and free and a world at peace. And yet since then we seem to have had sort of one problem after another. And I think we need to think about that, why it happened, uh, how it happened. And of course, there are a number of reasons. Things don't happen usually for a single reason in history. Normally, as uh, some would say, uh, Important events are overdetermined. There is more than one explanation. Uh, but I do think uh, that uh, we need to understand what happened when the Cold War ended and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because out, out there in the public, here, Europe, and particularly Russia, I think there are very, uh, very uh, important distortions in people's view. I call them myths because I think they turn history upside down, what actually happened. Take the first of these that I would mention. Many people look at uh, the Cold War as if it ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, I think that is quite wrong. As a matter of fact, when uh, I was shown 
a TV documentary, later shown on CNN and maybe other networks, about the end of the Cold War. Uh, I was shown an advanced version, and it had the Cold War ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Russian flag going up over the Kremlin instead of the Soviet flag. And I told the producer, hey, you know, the Cold War had been over two or three years before the Soviet Union collapsed. It's wrong to think of it that way. And he said, well, but it's more dramatic <laughs> to think of it that way. And I said, well, is, your, is this a documentary or is it a drama? Uh, now, uh, I'll talk later why it's important to get this straight, uh, but you know, there is a uh, second myth, and that is when we talk about winning the Cold War, it sounds as if we're talking as if this was a military victory, or that it was uh, uh, something where one country was defeated uh, by military and economic pressure. Uh, and that, in fact, uh, communism itself was defeated uh, by these pressures. That, too, I think is absolutely wrong. Because the Cold War ended while communism was still in control of the Soviet Union. And it was not military pressure from the outside that brought the end of communism uh, in the Soviet Union. But in fact, it was the leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who step by step removed the party from control uh, of the country. He was able to do that because the Cold War was over and the military pressure from the outside freed him up to try internal reforms. And when he started these internal reforms, the apparatus of the Communist Party started resisting. And he did something very rare in history, and that was to put the interests of the country and its reform above the interest of the party and even above the interest of his own power position. And he, uh, uh, therefore, he was the one who maneuvered uh, the Soviet Union out from communist control. Now, the third myth, uh, and you don't hear this so much now as you did for a while, uh, but that the Cold War was something similar to World War III, and that the war on terrorism, it follows, is World War IV, uh, and so on. Again, I think this is totally wrong. Because the Cold War was not a war in a military sense. The Soviet, there were wars, Korea, Vietnam, but these were on the periphery. There was no war between the United States and the Soviet Union, and thank God we're here today because of that. We probably wouldn't be uh, if we had had a real war. But the other issue here is this penchant we have for calling any concerted effort, a war, a war on drugs, war on poverty, war on whatever. When you use the term metaphorically, you're not talking about the sort of thing that happened in World War I and World War II. You're talking about something very different. But the problem of using that metaphor is 
people tend to think that you can win and lose the same way you win or lose a war. So uh, I think we have to be very careful uh, with uh, these metaphorical terms. Uh, the, the thing about the end of the Cold War is that we negotiated an end in the interest of all parties. There were no defeated ones. And it's fine to say we won the Cold War in the sense that we prevailed without fighting uh, and we prevailed with our system intact, but we didn't defeat the Soviet Union when we won the Cold War. We ended in the interest of a Soviet Union which gave its leader the possibility of reforming the country because its internal problems under the communist system were very great and it was not going to be able to develop into a successful country uh, in the world of the late 20th and certainly in the 21st century unless the bonds of the communist rule had been removed. Uh, and uh, to think that the Soviet Union was defeated in the Cold War is absolutely wrong. Uh, Gorbachev negotiated with Reagan, uh, with the first George Bush, and with the other Western leaders in the interests of his country. His was suffering from the arms race economically more than any of the rest of us. And to end it gave them the possibility of reform, uh, at least um, uh, uh, theoretically. So um, now let's go to another myth uh, that Russia was defeated. Well, that's the one I was talking about. and. Obviously, uh, that isn't uh, uh, true, in part because the Russian Federation was only part of the Soviet Union. Even if the Soviet Union had been defeated in the Cold War, the Russian Federation would not have been because it was only part of the country. Uh, and uh, actually, the elected leaders of Russia in those last years of the Cold War were cooperating with us to help end it. So that uh, the uh, Russian Federation itself of today was never even a party to the Cold War. Uh, so to consider them a defeated nation, which much of the rhetoric does, and which the Russians today think that the rest of the world has treated them as a defeated nation, is behind many of the problems we have today uh, in it, and I'll talk about some of these later. Well, wh why does this matter? This interpretation of history, who won what, whether it was a war or not. Well, first of all, uh, when you, if you think that the Cold War ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union, then this leads to the mistaken idea that an authoritarian system can be brought down by military and economic power from the outside. Uh, now, and that leads precisely to the sort of goal that we have seemed to have uh, since the end of the Cold War of regime change. That by external pressure, we can change regimes in the other countries for the better. That's not what happened during the Cold War, and we haven't had much success with trying regime change later. And so it's high time we need to understand uh, that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union is not, uh, you might say, a pattern uh, caused 
by uh, external pressure uh, or produced a system uh, brought about by external pressure. Uh, the, uh, the problem here is that actually by ending the Cold War, we gave Gorbachev the possibility, the leader of the Communist Party, to reform the country internally. And uh, therefore, it is the opposite of bringing pressure to bear or removing a leader and thinking there's going to come from that uh, uh, something better. Uh, now, the implications of the myth three, that Cold War was in effect World War III, and that the war in terror is World War IV, it leads to the false notion that these metaphorical wars uh, can be won the same way uh, that the methods as to real wars. And <laughs> we should have learned time and time again when you talk over the war on drugs or the war on poverty, or for that matter, the so-called war on terrorism. Uh, these are not problems that are amenable to the sort of military pressure or the military might uh, that can win real wars. Um, and when you get into Russia being defeated in the Cold War, uh, that sort of implies uh, that uh, Russia as a defeated nation uh, was really, didn't play a role in ending the Cold War uh, even though they did, and that they're really not worthy of becoming a, a member of the Western Alliance. Uh, now, when we say we won the Cold War, obviously we were not defeated. But the problem is, when you put it that way, it sounds like somebody was defeated. Yes, we won the Cold War, and that's why I call it a half-truth. But everybody else won. We ended the Cold War on terms that were the, in the interest of all parties, the United States, its allies, and the Soviet Union. And uh, all are better off because of that. And to think of one side having been defeated is simply wrong. Symbolic of that was one of the, our most important agreements, uh, the so-called INF Treaty, the one that abolished uh, a whole class of nuclear weapons, and this was an agreement uh, that uh, President Reagan and President Gorbachev signed, and it was an agreement which broke precedent in a number of ways. Not only did it totally eliminate a whole class of nuclear weapons, but it provided the most thorough on-site inspection to make sure uh, that neither side cheated, and that was important. So what actually brought it into the Cold War was negotiations. Yes, they were backed by strength, but it wasn't strength alone. It was uh, the negotiating process. Uh, so the, in as much as we negotiated and in to the Cold War, uh, we, uh, we, I think, proved the power of diplomacy uh, rather than the power of military strength. Though obviously our military strength in giving us strength to negotiate was part of that. Uh, and if we had 
set out to say the communist regime has to change in the Soviet Union before we can deal with them, I can assure you we would still be in the Cold War, there would still be a Soviet Union. Uh, we uh, were not trying uh, to change the regime. Now, I think one of the reasons that people get confused uh, and have gotten really the wrong idea of some of these things is that they conflate what I would call three geopolitically seismic events. When I, I call them seismic because it's the political equivalent of continents separating or, 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 or clashing. The geopolitical world was simply rearranged. Uh, first, we ended the Cold War. Ideologically and philosophically, in my opinion, that happened in December 1988, when Gorbachev from the United Nations made an announcement that in effect implicitly rejected Marxism-Leninism as the basis of uh, uh, the Soviet uh, uh, political policy and said explicitly that all countries should have a right of choosing their alliances. In other words, he was announcing in advance that the Soviet Union would no longer try to keep the East European countries uh, in uh, uh, an alliance uh, by force. By 89, when the Soviet Union allowed the East European governments to free themselves, uh, then without intervening, this confirmed that the Cold War was over. Uh, then the second of these seismic changes was when the Communist Party lost control of the Soviet Union. Now this happened by stages between 89 and 91, and as I've said, because of moves that Gorbachev made. And third, when the Soviet Union shattered into 15 independent states in December 91, this occurred because of internal pressures, not because of external pressures. Now, the three events were connected, but each had a separate causation. If you go to the first, as I said, we had negotiations between particularly the American leaders and uh, the Soviet leader, but also our European allies and, and other allies were very much involved in that. And uh, these negotiations brought an end to the Cold War. The two figures, I think, that were absolutely crucial were Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. I believe that neither could have done it without the other. Uh, we can talk about that later if you want to. And then when the Communist Party lost control of the Soviet Union, it was Gorbachev, as I've mentioned, who maneuvered it out of power. And he did this because he saw that the party was resisting the sort of reforms he wanted the uh, uh, country uh, to take. He couldn't have done this if the Cold War was on. So when one thinks that somehow we destroyed communism with our policies, they get it absolutely backwards. Uh, and I think this is so widespread. I recall that when President Reagan died, uh, the Economist, the British magazine, had on its cover the man who defeated communism. 
wrong. It was Gorbachev who defeated communism, and Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, would never have claimed to. Uh, his attitude was, yes, communism is a lousy system. If they want it, that's their business. What we object to is they're imposing it on other people. We have to stop that behavior, uh, which, of course, we did to end the Cold War. And then when the Soviet Union shattered, what was the position of the United States? We didn't want that to happen. Yes, we wanted the three Baltic states, which we had never recognized as legally part of the Soviet Union, to regain their independence. But we hoped that the rest, or as many of the rest as possible, would join uh, uh, Gorbachev's Union Treaty in a voluntary union. Uh, so we did not consider the breakup of the Soviet Union in the American interest at that time. You know, if that sounds like news to you, uh, you're like mo many other people because so much has been said as if the Cold War ended with the breakup of the Soviet Union and as if we caused that breakup. Now, and this, in Russian minds today, uh, this plays a very, very big uh, 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 role. Uh, but um, the uh, fact is, now, uh, how did we actually negotiate the end of the Cold War? And I think there are lessons here for diplomacy which we should pay attention to and which we have not always paid attention to uh, since the Cold War ended. First of all, we set in the Reagan administration right at the height of the Cold War, beginning about 1983 and 84, when we tried to put together our policies in a coherent policy, which would be negotiable with a reasonable Soviet leader, which we didn't have at the time. We put together a four-part agenda. One was to reduce arms, and particularly nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction. The second, to end our participation in conflict in third countries. Third, to improve respect for human rights. And the fourth, to bring down the Iron Curtain that was separating the world. Now, we didn't want to sound tendentious, so we called it, let's build a better working relationship. We began to put that agenda together uh, in uh, 1983 and 1984, before Gorbachev came to power. And there were three things that were not in it, and we need to bear that in mind. One, we didn't challenge the legitimacy of the Soviet system. Many of our hardliners at that time said, you know, we shouldn't treat them as equals. That's a revolutionary regime. They came to power illegally. All you can do is just shout them down and bring pressure to bear. That was never President Reagan's policy. Second, President Reagan specifically instructed us, we are not going to seek military superiority because uh, you can't make an agreement if your goal is military superiority. Uh, and third, we would not try to force the collapse of the Soviet system. This, there was no hint of regime change. We wanted to change the behavior of the regime, not to remove the regime. Now, it took Gorbachev a little while to respond. I've listed there some of the things that happened, but gradually, 
in part because we began to cast this agenda, not in terms of things they had to do, but in terms of things that we both should do, and tried to define the aims so that if the Soviet Union really did want peace and was going to stop trying to dominate its neighbors, uh, we uh, could uh, uh, come to terms. We started by proposing much expanded exchanges of people in every field, educational, cultural, sports, whatever. Uh, we, uh, and uh, this, uh, Gorbachev agreed at the, his first meeting with Reagan. Uh, we had agreed then at that meeting that, that we would cut our nuclear weapons by 50%. You know, President Carter, just a few years earlier, had proposed, without consultation in advance with the Soviets, a cut of 30%, and they immediately answered, that's too much, uh, it must be a trick. So it began clear to us that, you know, we've got to stop shouting at each other and consult more privately before we do these things. And there was not much progress at that first meeting regarding the human rights or the regional conflict. But before President Reagan went to Geneva, he wrote down a memo for himself and the staff, and uh, it was shared with us on our way to Geneva, uh, saying that if he's got something wrong, we'll have time to brief him on it. And on human rights, he had a very important passage. He said, I think we are somewhat too upfront about human rights. Well, we were not somewhat too upfront. We were very upfront about human rights. But he said, you know, beating, uh, hammering away at them on human rights will get cheers from the bleachers, but it will not help those affected. In fact, it could hurt them. And he went on to say, we have got to start dealing with human rights in private. And from then on, he did. Uh, he and Secretary Schultz did uh, do it privately. And not only that, as we got them to agree to certain things, we never said publicly we pressed for that or so on. And when Secretary of State Schultz first mentioned human rights in a private meeting with the new Soviet foreign minister, Edward Shevardnadze, the one that Gorbachev uh, brought in to replace Gromyko, Shevardnadze answered, okay, you're going to talk about human rights in the Soviet Union. Can we talk about the status of African Americans and women in the United States? And Schultz said, well, of course. I think we're making progress, but we've got ways to go, and we can use all the help we can get. In other words, all of these issues, whether it was arms control or human rights, we at least rhetorically put in the contrast, let's cooperate to do something that is in the interest of both our countries. Uh, and I'll tell you, that works much better than hammering at another country publicly on things they're doing uh, which we don't like. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, now, at the second summit meeting that uh, Reagan had with Gorbachev, they came close to an agreement uh, that would have abolished nuclear weapons uh, in our two countries within 10 years. They came very close. Uh, I've written at length the, uh, about this meeting and the fact that as close as they came, it probably wouldn't have worked in that form, uh, but 
in fact, uh, they did come very close, and though when the meeting ended, both were rather angry at the other for not coming to final terms, uh, as they looked back just a few months later, both of them saw that the other really was trying to find a way out of this nuclear arms race. And uh, uh, in fact, by 1987, the Reykjavik meeting had occurred in 86. By 1987, uh, we were officially negotiating our issues on the part of the American agenda, which we had set two years earlier. And we can see the results. Uh, there is the way the borders of Europe uh, looked, uh, the blue uh, being uh, NATO uh, and uh, the European Union, uh, red and pink and gray uh, being other areas, the gray uh, neutrals. Uh, but uh, the, uh, you can see how quickly it expanded. Now the second geopolitical transformation uh, was the loss of control by the Communist Party. Uh, and there, of course, uh, the, uh, when that control was lost, uh, and there was a series of events, I've listed some of them here, uh, but step by step, the absolute control of the party and, and the secret police, the KGB over society, was loosened. Uh, and that meant that when the Soviet Union broke up against our, our wishes uh, in, in the American government, uh, that was done because of internal pressures uh, within the Soviet Union. Um, and I've listed here a few of the uh, uh, things, but one of the things I want to stress, and I do this particularly with Russians, who seem to think that it was the United States that brought down the Soviet Union. It was their own president, their elected president, Boris Yeltsin, who conspiring, and it was a conspiracy, they went off secretly with the leaders of Ukraine and Belarus that brought the Soviet Union uh, to an end. Uh, therefore, Russia was actually the biggest co contributor to the end of the Soviet Union. Unfortunately, today, because of many things that have happened since then, most Russians think that we brought military and economic pressure to break up the Soviet Union, which has made their life much more difficult, that we've shown no respect for them, and that we are responsible uh, for breaking up the country, uh, which, you know, thinking only of, uh, of part of what happened, uh, was a more powerful country in the world uh, before. Uh, all of those are simply mistakes in how we do it. Now, however the Cold War ended, and whoever was responsible, the feeling was there used to be two superpowers, and now with the Soviet Union collapse, now there's only one. And I would have to ask, well, what does it mean to be a superpower? Both the US and the Soviet Union had enough nuclear weapons that if they were used, could not only wipe out each other, but virtually wipe out civilization on Earth, maybe make it uninhabitable. At one point in the Cold War, there were 60,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, 
And I had calculations at a time that that was not, it was not enough to destroy civilization once, but seven times over. And I often wondered, you know, once you can do it once, why do you want to do it more? Uh, of course, the whole question was not how much they could destroy, but how much you had to have to keep the other side from using them against you. They're unusable for any rational military purpose. That's the fact of the matter. But if that's what it means by being a superpower, both the United States and Russia still are. But we still, even with our 2,000 or so apiece, have enough to destroy each other uh, effectively. The trouble with thinking yourself as a superpower, you tend to think that a superpower can do anything it chooses. It can change other societies. It can take on responsibility for order in the world. But that's really not the case. What is power? You have to ask power to do what? And you can be the most powerful country in the world, militarily and economically, as the United States is, without question, and still not be able to change other countries. Because creation of an effective government or effective society is something people have to do for themselves. Outsiders can't do it. We've tried it in Iraq, and we see the results. And we tried it because of this illusion that we were a superpower now. And since our goals were simply to give the world democracy, and to bring peace to the world and to protect the victims of exploitation and violence. We use our military might to do that. And that is one of the powers that has gotten us into the problems we face today. Now, time is running on. I want to leave time for questions. Let me just briefly go through what has happened since then that I think violated the sort of lessons we should have learned from the Cold War. The Clinton administration, I think, had some real achievements. They balanced the budget, and I think that was very important. And, and they did it by using some tax increases, which I think uh, you can't do it without that, though that's not the only thing. Uh, they also uh, did a number of other things uh, that I think were laudable, but they missed a number of opportunities that once the Cold War was over, we should have made more progress. Arms reduction stalled. In the Reagan administration, we were aiming eventually to try to get nuclear weapons eliminated. Somehow, that stalled. Uh, it stalled in the 90s. Imports of oil grew unchecked uh, uh, in the 90s, and we became more and more dependent. There was no peace in the Middle East, despite the Oslo agreements. Uh, because, uh, well, we seemed not to really push very hard until right at the end of the administration. But as far as Russia was concerned, the worst decision was to start expanding NATO to the east uh, and leaving Russia out of the structure of European security. And then, having started NATO expansion, uh, when Serbia was accused of, of uh, uh, oppression in Kosovo, uh, we bombed Serbia, an act of war, without the approval of the UN Security Council, using 
the NATO alliance, which was supposed to be a defensive alliance for a war against a country which had not attacked any NATO member. And of course, Russia took great exception to that. And basically, our defense posture didn't change. There were some small cuts in our defense budget, but we still were maintaining a defense structure uh, which was predicated on the existence of a comparable, you might say, great power uh, that could challenge us. And there wasn't any. Uh, we were, at times, spending about uh, as much as the next 12 countries combined uh, in defense. So, uh, as I said, uh, these, I think, were mixed opportunities, and the Russians looked at the time when they started out thinking they would be members of the alliance, feeling at the end uh, totally excluded. Things got much worse uh, under uh, 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 the Bush-Cheney administration, um, and I've listed some of them here, but as far as Russia is concerned, walking out of the ABM treaty, which we had a legal right to do, uh, continuing to expand NATO, talking about bases in uh, countries, and eventually, right up in 2008, in uh, um, talking about NATO membership for Ukraine, where two-thirds of the people didn't want to be in NATO, and where the Russians had told us this is an absolute red line. Uh, you cannot just keep expanding NATO into our neighborhood and now into countries that for centuries were actually part of the same country. Uh, so Russia began to be a problem. Uh, and although uh, the Russian President Putin was very cooperative after the 9-11 attacks. He called President Bush to offer his cooperation. They did cooperate with intelligence about Afghanistan, with transit routes, uh, and many other things. But as I mentioned, in return, we began to walk out of treaties uh, and uh, to uh, treat them increasingly as if they were a threat and a potential enemy, if not an actual enemy. Uh, and by 2007, uh, uh, Putin had been very, uh, very emphatic. Now, when President Obama was elected, um, you know, he pledged at that time uh, to, uh, to change the relationship with Russia uh, by uh, what he called uh, a restart. Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, used this too. At some time, some Russians said, well, it's fine to have a restart, but I think what we really need is different software. Uh, and that probably was true, because the idea was that we could continue to hammer at them at human rights and, and internal matters that happened in Russia, but cooperate on those things where uh, our interests were similar. We got a new agreement on arms, a very important one, uh, uh, the uh, New START agreement. The reason that was particularly important was not only because it brought some reduction in nuclear weapons, but it preserved the verification measures that otherwise we would have lost when the previous treaties uh, ran out. Uh, but uh, then there were problems over missile defense. Um, I won't talk about that in detail at the moment, uh, but the fact is that we don't yet have a missile defense that works. 
We're spending tens of billions a year at it. But the Russians consider deployments, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, against non-existent Iranian weapons, which if they existed, uh, Iran would have no reason to launch them against Europe, as simply a subterfuge for putting in weapons that would eventually be used to, to uh, limit their deterrence. And then new problems turned up. Syria, here was a case where we started out uh, talking about regime change. Assad must go. And the Russians were saying, wait a minute. Look what happened in Libya. You rem look what is happening in Egypt. Uh, you remove these guys, and what comes later? Uh, have you really thought about that? Uh, and then we start drawing red lines that we can't enforce. Uh, and, of course, today uh, we're seeing that we're having to start a new war against ISIS in Syria without, necess without necessarily making an ally of Assad, whom we were trying to remove. And yet Russia, which should be an ally in this, as Iran, is sitting at the sidelines because of Ukraine. Now, a couple of words about Ukraine that we need to understand. I'll make this very quick. First of all, bear in mind where it is. The Washington Post a couple of months ago had a survey which indicated that only one in six Americans know where Ukraine is located. Well, there it's located in Europe. It has a very long border with Russia. And the, for three centuries, the bulk of the country was part of Russia. It was put together in the Soviet period, different parts coming from different areas. The light green there at the left, the east, uh, which is uh, the people from there now dominate the current uh, government in Kiev, became part of the Soviet Union as a result of a treaty between Hitler and Stalin. Uh, that had been largely Eastern Poland uh, between the two world wars. Uh, and uh, the Ukrainians there were not very happy in Poland, but uh, they were switched and they were even less happy uh, when they were switched to the Soviet Union. Uh, these other areas were joined at different times. The Crimea, the purple at the bottom, uh, was simply added to Ukraine uh, by a stroke of the pen when Nikita Khrushchev uh, was General Secretary of the uh, Communist Party of the Soviet Union. It had been considered part of Russia since Catherine the Great had conquered the area uh, from the Crimean Tatars, who were vassals of Ottoman Turkey uh, in the late 18th century. Uh, and the population, the majority, are Russian-speaking Russians and, and not Ukrainians. Now, one of the problems that Ukraine has had, it has never been able to create a unified government uh, that really unites all parts of the country. It has not, unfortunately, had a Nelson Mandela. Uh, every time you have a vote, it turns out something like this. You get 80, 90 percent at one extreme voting for one, 80 or 90 percent at the other extreme voting for other, and they had a constitution of winner-take-all. You get a little over 50%, uh, and suddenly you get control of all the provinces uh, and so on. Now, 
the Maidan revolution was one that started with protests over corruption, which was terrible. I must say that Ukraine has progressed even less than Russia uh, from the problems caused by being part of the Soviet Union. And uh, the, uh, they had become an economic basket case even before the recent revolution. Uh, but even so, the confrontation over the uh, Ukraine, and I can talk about some of that in the question period if you would like, is in no sense comparable to the Cold War. So people that, again, getting back to my first point, this is not Cold War II. Cold War I was a worldwide confrontation over very basic ideology. Uh, that idea, there are no ideological differences uh, now between the United States and Russia. And as important as Ukraine is to Russians and Ukrainians, it, geographically it is not nearly as important to us strategically or uh, in terms of our own security as, say, ISIS uh, in the Middle East. But it is dangerous. It is dangerous because this confrontation between us is pushing, I think, both sides into irrational policies. And the, uh, the problem is, I wonder, you know, should our goal still be a Europe holding free? If it is, then our goal shouldn't be to punish Russia, in quotes, uh, for things that they're doing in their own neighborhood. These may be very wrong. I think they are. I don't like them at all. I also think that many of the things that President Putin is pushing Russia to do is going to be very costly to Russia. But if we stand back and say, no, 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 you can't do that, when some of the things are things that we have done, such as violate treaties or invading other countries, as we did with Iraq, or recognizing a change of border uh, when both sides don't agree, as we did with Kosovo and, and Serbia, we set a precedent for doing things that were not strictly legal in international law. And now we're saying, hey, you're violating international law. And the Russians are saying, <laughs> whenever you want to, you do it. But then when we feel it's necessary, uh, it's as if the world is coming to an end. Well, they're not behaving, I think, very well. They're not even behaving in their own interest. But one of the problems is that if you start putting sanctions on, these are not enough to change their behavior if they think their security is at issue. And yet they're enough to convince the Russian people that the damage to them that their own policies will bring about are actually caused by the United States and its allies. And I think we have to find a way back to our original goal and that is integrating Russia with Europe. Uh, because the fact in mind, the fact we need to keep in mind is that Russia, given its size, given its location, given the technical sophistication of the people, uh, the education, they're gonna be either part of the solution or part of the problem on all of the broader worldwide problems. Whether they're security problems like ISIS or problems like global warming or certainly, you know, uh, international crime, corruption, drug trade, you name it, these broader issues, 
they're going to be part of the solution or part of the problem. And it does seem to me we need to adjust our parties to do everything we can to encourage them to be part of the solution. Why have we been doing many of the things that we have that have been mistakes? I think it's been domestic politics, and I think it is also so the, the, our population making demands of the president that are unreasonable. We don't want to police the world, we're not, and we couldn't if we tried, and yet we keep insisting the presidents try to do so. It's not fair to them, and it's not fair to the rest of us, but I think we do have to ask, will domestic politics continue uh, to create these problems for us? I'll leave that with you, and thanks very much. I think we have some time for questions. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm taking a U.S. foreign policy class, and we're, we're discussing Vietnam War. And would you consider the Vietnam War a logical continuation of the Cold War, or would it be an aberration? Well, the Vietnam War was part of the Cold War. And, you know, honestly, at that time, I was a full supporter of the Vietnam War. I thought we really had to stop the march of communism in Southeast Asia. And I was afraid that if we didn't stop it then, it was going to spread elsewhere. I was also aware of the fact that when Vietnam divided, we had helped remove the refugees from the north to the south. And I thought we had an obligation. Looking back, I think it was a big mistake. And quite honestly here, you know, in the OBJ library, President Johnson would have gone down probably as one of our greatest presidents if we hadn't, if he had been able to stop the war and get us out. Because the domestic reforms he brought about are really profound, and he doesn't get credit for them with many people because of the Vietnam War. In retrospect, uh, I think we were wrong to get involved. And the thing is, a lot fewer people would have gotten killed to just let the communists have it because it was not a centralized move from Moscow controlled by them. The Russians thought it was at the time, in Stalin's time, but China broke away and then the Vietnamese, of course, don't want to be dominated by China. And right now, our relations with Vietnam are quite normal. So, looking back, I'm sorry that we got involved in Vietnam, but I must say, at the time, I supported it. But I try to learn. <laughs> yes? Uh, about four years ago, Admiral Jim Stafford of CNC of NATO was standing where you are talking to us about NATO. And I asked him what the purpose of NATO was in this day and age post-Cold War. And Admiral Stafford just flashed a uh, slide up on the chart that was the stock response that said, that, that allegedly showed the uh, graduating class of 1914 of Saint-Cyr, which he said was all in this and they were all killed in the war, and that's why we had to have NATO. The problem is, of course, that that wasn't an accurate picture of the class of 1914, and he was completely wrong in his facts on the percentage of class of 14 killed. Admiral Stavridis' uh, response as to why we need NATO was a 
bunch of goddamn cock and bull. And I'm wondering if you can provide a better answer than Admiral Stafford just did as to what the purpose of NATO is in this day and age and why it's important for countries so far removed from the Atlantic like uh, Georgia and Bulgaria to be a part of. Excellent question. Um, you know, the original purpose of NATO uh, it was explained by the first Secretary General of NATO, uh, Brett, this way. He said, it is to keep the Russians out, to keep the Germans down, to keep the Americans in. Three things. Now, when the Cold War ended, even before the Soviet Union broke up, we didn't need it to keep the Russians out but we did need it to keep Germany fully integrated into an international military structure and to keep some American military presence in Europe to prevent what happened in the first two world wars, which started in Europe and started because of competition between the Germans and other countries in Europe. And these were the arguments we used when we were trying to get Gorbachev to agree that a unified Germany could stay in NATO. Because at first, when they saw that the Germans were determined to unify East and West Germany, and this was being determined by the Germans in East Germany, in their, this is not something the diplomats worked out. The Germans voted with their feet and took control of that situation. And then the question was, we can't keep Germany from uniting Will they be allowed to stay in NATO? And I remember Secretary of State Baker telling Gorbachev, February 90, think about this. Assuming there's no extension of NATO jurisdiction to the east, not one inch, wouldn't you be better off with a united Germany in NATO, which does two things keeps Germany integrated in a military structure and keeps some American military presence in Europe. And Gorbachev's answer was, well, of course, any NATO expansion to the east is unacceptable, but I understand what you're saying. And I do want to say one thing, that we are no longer trying to exclude you from Europe. We recognize that you Americans have a useful role. He said, oh, you know, you probably don't need 300,000 troops. But, but it is now no longer our policy to exclude you from Europe. We want you here. We know you can be a stabilizing factor. So what was left was then we still needed a NATO of those. Now, when East Europe went free and decided they, they wanted to be members, I think at first we came up with the Partnership for Peace. And I think that was a perfect vehicle because it allowed military exercises, it allowed consultation with the military as much as they wanted, but not part of the military alliance. And uh, when the, the Poles and, and others began to demand full membership, many of us, including myself, George Kennan, many others, including many people who helped us negotiate the end of the Cold War, said, don't do this. Don't start moving what had been a Cold War you know, organization uh, to the east 
we need a structure which includes NATO. We do need to keep it for the reasons that I've indicated, but no longer to keep the Russians out. We need a security structure that includes the Russians, and NATO can be part of that. And we can work that with uh, various other ways. Uh, yes, the East Europeans need some assurance, given history, but don't do it this way. And we also said, if you start, you're going to have to stop. Because at a certain point, Russia will draw the line and we will have a new confrontation, a serious one. Uh, and this was particularly true of Ukraine. Now, why do people keep talking about Ukraine and Georgia in NATO? Well, basically, those who want to be in NATO thinks being in NATO will solve their internal problems. Other countries, NATO has not taken a country that had internal problems. Uh, Romania and Hungary had to, you know, settle the question of Transylvania, have no claims, uh, before they were allowed, because NATO was not set up to solve internal problems. Georgia's problems are internal. Uh, they abolished the autonomy of two, of two of their regions, actually started military action against them while there was still a Soviet Union. And so the idea that somehow that Georgia's just been put upon by Russia, it's much more complicated than that because the Georgians are trying to do to their minorities what they accuse the Russians of doing to them. Uh, Ukraine is even more complicated because two-thirds of the Ukrainians didn't want to be in NATO. Uh, those in the East, those that now are rebelling. Uh, and, and we're supposed to put the lives of American soldiers at, at risk and risk a nuclear war because they can't settle their internal matters? You know, it, it, it's so absurd, it almost seems insane to me. But anyway, uh, that's, uh, that is a problem. And I, in fact, I think that they, Ukraine and Georgia would never have been accepted in NATO because enough of our allies would have vetoed it, that even if we wanted it. Uh, and I don't think that any administration since the Bush-Cheney administration has wanted it. But uh, the fact is the Russians don't see it that way. And uh, the basic reason that Putin took Crimea was because he thought the, this new revolutionary government in Kiev was going to ask for NATO membership and that they would lose their naval base at Sevastopol, which is one of the most important naval bases. Uh, and uh, uh, in fact, he said as much. He said at one point, uh, you know, we like uh, American sailors, we like to visit them in many ports, but we don't want to have to go to Sevastopol to visit them. Uh, and uh, I, I think, you know, uh, people who look at this issue simply fail to look at it from the standpoint that other countries do. And you can say, well, Russia is no longer very powerful. But I'll tell you, in terms of using power in their own neighborhood, they're more powerful than we are, given the fact that neither side is going to use nuclear weapons over this. Uh, yes? Uh, yeah, a little louder, I have to. Who is responsible for not cooperating with Russia? I'm sorry, what? Who is the, who is the responsible uh, which do not want to cooperate with Russia? Who is responsible for not cooperating with Russia? Well, you know, <laughs> I can't answer that in the abstract. Uh, cooperating with Russia on what? Uh, we have cooperated with Russia on some things, 
and not on others. I think that one of the problems has been our attempt to use issues like human rights issues or issues of internal governance uh, from the outside and publicly. That's one reason I stress the, the, the Reagan comment about dealing with human rights issues privately. Instead, we have been not only very public, we have gone even worse. I don't know how many of you have heard about the Magnitsky Act, one passed by uh, the Senate a couple of years ago. Now, that was about a court case in Moscow that, um, well, a, a lawyer had been arrested and he died under arrest while he was under arrest, and uh, there were accusations made that uh, there was corruption and so on. And that was a real scandal, but it was a Russian scandal. And the U.S. Senate and the, and the House of Representatives, they pass a law requiring the State Department to make public uh, 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 refusal of visas uh, to certain specified people uh, who were supposed to be involved. And it was a law that supposedly was about human rights, but it was restricted only to Russia. Well, gee, uh, our Senate at that time couldn't pass a budget. We were totally, <laughs> they were spending most of our time not, not voting on the House having uh, tried to uh, uh, abolish the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and yet they're legislating on matters which in another country, does that mean that there have been miscarriages of justice nowhere else? How about miscarriages of justice here? Just, I think it was last week, there were two people released, one of them from death row in North Carolina, who had been convicted uh, on uh, false evidence. Uh, you know, when you think about it, now the Russians considered this the ultimate insult. And so they passed, uh, when, when people get, it, it, when people feel humiliated and publicly humiliated, they react in irrational ways. So what did this, the Russian Duma do? They forbade Americans from adopting Russian orphans. Americans had adopted over 60,000 Russian orphans over time, and there had one or two cases of, of tragedies that had occurred, to be sure, but most of them had been very practical. Well, you know, they were penalizing their own people, and yet you get this atmosphere that you're somehow enemies. And they get the feeling that, again, combined with these other ideas, these are the people who brought down the Soviet Union, that created conditions in Russia in the 90s they called it democracy, but it was really anarchy. And the Russians look back at that and say that wasn't democratia, that was dermokratia. Uh, democratia is democracy, dermokratia is shitocracy. Uh, and, uh, and the whole privatization. Uh, they would say, well, you know, they called it privatizatia, privatization, but it was prikratizatia, <laughs> grabification, just a seizure of assets. So, uh, and although that was something that they did, because of these sort of attitudes, public attitudes, uh, you hear they begin to blame us, just as they blame us, oh, you broke up the Soviet Union just to make us weak, when it's the exact opposite of the truth. So, you know, I think that what you get is a total disconnect of how of some of our decisions, most of which were not made to penalize Russia, we started expanding NATO because East Europeans wanted it. 
And we have a lot of East European voters in Pennsylvania and Illinois, and uh, uh, President Clinton needed them to get reelected in 96, get back to domestic politics uh, on many of these things. And it had much more to do with that than it did, uh, we, we weren't setting out to penalize Russia. And yet, once you start a process, you keep doing it. And let's say this process is one which, at the time, you know, many of us said, it's going to be very hard, it's going to be a long fight to establish a real democratic regime in Russia. Russia's never had democracy. They don't know, you know, uh, they won't really know about it. But if we treat them as an enemy, you are going to undermine any democratic process you have. And that is precisely uh, the qu uh, question. Uh, so uh, it's not that we are causing necessarily these clampdowns in Russia, but the interaction of what I've called uh, inconsiderate American action and Russian overreaction and feeling of humiliation has brought us to a situation where neither side is, is, is benefiting. Uh, you have another yeah, question? Or the la the, uh, the last uh, one. Maybe the lady here, yes. Well, personally, I, uh, I got interested in Russian uh, when I was still in high school, uh, but I didn't have a chance to study it until my third year in college I started. And I, uh, I you know, I got, uh, first of all, I got fascinated by Russia and Ukraine, the Soviet Union as a whole, uh, during World War II when I was in high school. But I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, and we didn't have many people who spoke any foreign language there, <laughs> not even Spanish. Uh, and uh, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, but uh, so I, uh, as a freshman, I read uh, Crime and Punishment, a translation, and I got fascinated by Russian literature and started reading more and more. And then when Duke started offering Russian for the first time in 1948, I was in the first class. And eventually I decided uh, to specialize in it. Uh, and uh, uh, so I con continued uh, uh, my studies, and, uh, um, and eventually I, I did my graduate work majoring in Russian literature, uh, and frankly, for my diplomacy, I could not have had a better major. Uh, I mean, of course, I took international relations courses and all of that, but you know, the thing about diplomacy, I, I don't want to say forget international relations theory, I mean, any scholar needs to understand what these theories are. But as a practical diplomat, diplomacy is human relations. And you need to understand and respect the culture of the people you're dealing with. And anybody who's studied Russian literature knows they've got a great culture. And once you start from that basis, most of the other problems really seem to be diminished. And, and I, I, I do think that for diplomacy, you not only need respect, you need a little more than respect with the people you're dealing with. I was always a hardliner coming to communism, uh, and, uh, uh, but I was never a hardliner regarding Russia uh, because I considered communism something impressed upon them. And this, this I think, was conveyed uh, almost subliminally 
to the people I dealt with. Because even though I was working for an administration that was very uh, anti-communist and known myself as a hardliner, uh, I never had any problem dealing with Russian officials. After I came as ambassador, and I, I mentioned this only because you mentioned language, and I think this is part of it, uh, after a few months in one of my receptions, uh, one of the junior officers in the foreign ministry was coming through the reception line, and he asked, uh, you know, I'd like to have a word with you later. And I said, sure, and I took him aside later, and I said, what is it you wanted? And he said, you know, I've, I'm the note taker in a lot of your meetings with our minister. And you say things that if anybody else said them would send him up the wall. When you say it, somehow he accepts it. What's your secret? Nobody had asked me that before. And I thought for a minute and I said, well, maybe it's because, you know, I really love this country, even when I don't like your policies. And he said, I thought so. And I wondered if you understood it. On that happy note, thank you all for coming. And thank you, Jack.